deeply and bring our mindfulness out. Mindfulness means recollection in the present moment. And you can recollect mindfully the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha. In one way we recollect the Buddhas, uh, we refer to the Buddha as the peaceful chief of conquerors in our chanting book. That's one of the lines we chant. Peaceful chief of conquerors. Um, obviously the Buddha was not somebody who went out conquering other people in uh, the more usual sense of the word like a, an army general or a king or somebody peaceful chief of conquerors the Buddha conquered his own mind his own we say defilements of mind his own unwholesome tendencies negative tendencies that caused himself suffering so he freed himself, liberated himself from suffering. That's one way we talk about enlightenment, a state of freedom from suffering, the end of suffering. And to achieve that one has to practice, one has to look very deeply at truth, the truth of one's existence as a human being. Uh, the framework the Buddha gave for this based on his own experience of taming, conquering his own mind. The framework he gave is what we call the Four Noble Truths, the very heart of the Buddhist teachings. All the Buddhist teachings fit into the Four Noble Truths, Arya Satcha Dhamma, just like all the footprints of the animals in the forest fit into the footprint of the elephant bigger than any other animal footprint. Similarly, all the teachings of the Buddha fit into the, the model or the, the, the teaching of the Four Noble Truths. And that is Dukkha, Samudhaya, Niroda, and Maga. So that's Dukkha, that's suffering, stress. Samudhaya is the course the origin of suffering, niroda, the end or cessation of suffering, maga is the path and the path of practice that leads to the end of suffering. These are the four noble truths uh, that the Buddha realized on the night of his enlightenment. So as we contemplate tonight maybe, as we practice meditation, what did the Buddha do on his night of his enlightenment? Well, he realized the Four Noble Truths clearly without any more delusion, any more misunderstanding, any more confusion of mind. Gave rise to, we say, a stainless vision of Dhamma, pure vision of Dhamma, unblemished, undefiled, undeluded vision of Dhamma meaning vision of truth 
that's the uh, the nature of Buddha's enlightenment. It's investigation and coming to a realization of truth, and thereby freeing himself from suffering. And it, this is probably why we all have an interest to be in a place like this on this night. We all aspire to peace, happiness. We all aspire to free ourselves from suffering. And the pathway that we followed is that the Dhamma that the Buddha taught. The Buddha said the Dhamma is like a, a lamp. It shines, has that quality, the truth has the quality of shining and illuminating the truth, illuminating what is what in life. And in particular, illuminating what is suffering, what is its cause and what is the end of suffering and the way to the end of suffering. The Dhamma illuminates this like a lamp. So we're all developing this quality of illuminating our minds through the power of truth and developing an understanding and a penetration of truth if we're following in the footsteps of the Buddha. Even developing a love of truth you know, and wish to aspire to actually penetrate, understand truth. This is what brings many, many people to take an interest in the Buddhist teachings. Take, uh, sometimes take precepts and go forth as uh, monks and nuns, but also as lay Buddhists. You know, we have that aspiration for truth, penetrating, understanding truth, and thereby liberating our minds from the various ignorance and delusions which cover over truth and causes suffering. So we have faith, some faith, some um, conviction in the Buddha's own understanding of truth from perhaps from some people from birth, from our parents gave us that conviction. They've taken us to temples and to hear the teachings and to have experiences of, of Buddhist practice since birth, perhaps, some people. Others come to it later in life, uh, but maybe come to it through reading books, hearing talks, uh, all with that wish to further understand truth and further experience some of that peace and happiness that the Buddha was talking about. We, as human beings, we all aspire to be happy and peaceful. There's no one different in that respect. So we've come to this practice with this, uh, this faith, this interest. And we can look at the Buddha himself as an example. Now, on the night of his enlightenment, what did he do? And in the path leading up to his enlightenment, his penetration, understanding of truth, what did he do? And indeed, what have all the other practitioners since the time of the Buddha done? How have they practiced um, to bring their own realization of truth to fruition? 
we can stop and think of that at this time. And the Buddha, say, coming to practice on the night of his enlightenment, he had uh, practiced for many years as an ascetic and still not fully penetrated truth. Felt he was still bound by suffering, still experience different kinds of stress and suffering his mind wasn't free and he knew that but just prior to the night of his enlightenment he had one reflection, one recollection that was very very important for him in his own spiritual path he remembered a time when he was a, a young boy maybe seven years old or so when his father who had been a, a king um, was leading a ceremony which happens, still happens today in some Asian countries the uh, ploughing ceremony at the beginning of the uh, growing season for rice the king or head of state or the, whoever's in charge comes and as a ritual of, for good fortune and, and wishing for the blessings of the gods and so on for a good crop comes and does a ploughing ceremony of the fields the first ploughing and being a young child, the Buddha to be, the Bodhisattva, didn't actually take part in the ceremony. He went off to one side and sat under a tree. And they say, sitting under the tree, quite naturally, his mind inclined towards meditation. No doubt, having practiced meditation over many, many lifetimes, just as we're practicing meditation tonight. He'd got used to it and his mind just quietly, quite naturally inclined to take up the breath as an object rather than uh, being distracted or playing as you might expect. <coughs> the Buddha just sat quietly following the in and out breath until his mind became perfectly still and peaceful. Even as a young child one can attain that state of samadhi sitting under a tree, in a rose apple tree. And legend has it that a miracle happened at that time as well. The uh, shade of the tree covering over the, the bodhisattva, the young Buddha-to-be, didn't move for the entire period that he entered that state of samadhi, probably for an hour or two while the ceremonies were going on. The shade of the tree didn't move with the movement of the sun as you would normally expect. You know, one sits under a shady tree, after a while the shade moves, one gets hot again. But it didn't. It just stayed covering him for the entire period that he sat in meditation. Even his father noticed this. All the courtiers, assistants to the king and then finally the king recognized that as something very unusual came over and sat down, knelt down in front of his own son, the king, and actually paid respects to his own son. I said, oh, this is something special. My own son can stop the sun for a few, few hours. It's the power of that experience, the bodhisattva first entering samadhi, experiencing a peaceful mind. And on the night of his enlightenment, he had remembered that because he was still searching for the right path, the right causes and conditions for him to understand the truth, the Dhamma. 
And he remembered that experience and he took that as his starting point under the Bodhi tree in Bodhgaya in northern India all those years ago. So he sat down and practiced Anapanasati, mindfulness of breathing, and made his mind very, very peaceful and calm, just contemplating the in and out breath and letting go of all the other distractions. So he used this as a a method, a technique to develop a state where the mind became very still, very peaceful. And it's this still, peaceful state that allows us the clarity to see deeper into truth, which is what we're seeking. Leads to a temporary uh, subsiding of our normal thoughts and emotions which cause us so much stress and suffering, all our normal uh, worries and concerns, our anger, our sleepiness, our different desires that come up and bother us, our doubts and uncertainties about life. When one practices meditation in this way, they start to drop away from the mind. The mind becomes more and more peaceful, focused on the breath, happy and content within itself. And obviously the Buddha himself was skilled in this, so it didn't take him long to achieve that. For us, maybe it takes a bit more effort and more practice. We're not yet close to being a Buddha. But nevertheless, the principle is the same. And the Buddha used that as his starting point. That wasn't yet enlightenment, but it's the starting point for calming the mind enough to start investigating and looking at truth, recognizing the truth about his own body and mind, the world, nature, and so on, to see some basic truths which would help reveal the way to free his mind from suffering. And actually before he realized the Four Noble Truths, he, uh, he gained some other knowledges first, again perhaps due to his great spiritual barami, having perfected the parameters over many, many lifetimes. And, um, his fir- the first knowledge that uh, came to him that night was actually the knowledge of, we say, the past lives. The fact that as human beings we haven't just been born once. We've been born over and over again, hundreds, thousands, and even millions of times. Which in this modern world is uh, something that's often difficult to understand or accept. It's not immediately obvious and difficult to prove in a sort of rational, scientific way. Nevertheless, This is what the Buddha said, this is the first knowledge he gained that night. Being able to remember or recollect his past lives and to realize that the kind of sufferings and stresses that we all experience in our daily life, we've experienced before. Not once, twice, but many, many, many times. We've been born, grown up, We've had successes and failures, happiness and sadness, good health, bad health, and so on. Many, many times over many countless lives, we've been born as men, as women, rich, poor, animals, 
in heaven realms, in hell realms, many, many different lifetimes. This is the, the knowledge that the Buddha gained. But the conclusion he drew from just recollecting that, using the power of deep samadhi, deep concentration to be able to uh, remember, recollect back, going through his past, they say the karmic connection back to his past lives. The, the conclusion he could draw was that every life is still the same, isn't it? It's still suffering. <laughs> Even if we get very wealthy and a lot of good things happen, we still get old, we get sick, one day we have to die. All the wealth and pleasurable experiences we can have, all the people we can know, the things we can do, still can't change that fact. And obviously some lives we often have you know, quite a lot of suffering. You know, the suffering of grief, of separation, the suffering of ill health, the suffering of poverty, suffering of all kinds of suffering. He could see this as a theme for his own mind, recollecting and contemplating this. It brought a very keen, clear awareness to the, his own mind that mm, life is bound up with suffering. doesn't mean to say we never experience happiness. We do, but the happiness of... Human beings is a very temporary kind of happiness, what we call sensual happiness, meaning happiness based on pleasurable experiences that we have through seeing pleasant sights, hearing pleasant sounds, tasting, smelling, touching, and then the pleasant ideas and thoughts and imaginations that we can have. We call the six, six-fold sense sphere of pleasure. You know, we do have pleasure in life, but it's all very fleeting, temporary. It doesn't last, comes and goes. And he could see in not just this life for himself, he could see in his life, his current life at that time, he'd had pleasure and success and all kinds of good fortune, but it still was all very temporary, impermanent. And every other life similar, the same. So this gave him this sort of motivation to want to seek something more satisfying, more permanent, and more permanent kinds of happiness and peace. Something that was beyond the realm of birth, old age, sickness and death, the normal kind of experience of human beings. And this is what led him to carry on meditating that night, investigating further. And the next knowledge that arose to him was the knowledge of karma. The understanding of this law of karma, this sort of impenetrable, unchangeable law of karma that affects us all. The fact that everything we do, all our actions have consequences. They bring results back to us. The skillful acts that we do bring happiness, bring benefit. The unskillful acts we do bring us suffering and other people's suffering. This is just a basic underlying law of nature, law of, you say, a scientific law, using a modern word, that affects us all whether we realize it or not. But for the Buddha, he got a very clear insight into this law of karma at that time, seeing how each person is affected by their karma. We're born of our karma as we just chanted. You know, we inherit our karma. We are supported by our karma. 
for good or or for ill, whatever karma I do, I'll be the heir of that, I'll receive the results of that. So we could see that as human beings our lives are bound up with karma, the good and bad karma we make, both on the mental level, verbal level and physical actions. Our karma is affecting us all the time. From the past up until now, our karma has affected us until this very moment and this moment we're making more karma that's going to affect us in the future. And that's, that's how our life is, it's bound up with karma and this making of karma. And our experience of happiness and suffering, our, how much, how little happiness and suffering we experience is bound up with the karmic causes and conditions that we create. So again, he could contemplate this and was looking for something that could actually get beyond even the whole process of karma, making karma, experiencing the results of karma. This is what we call Nibbāna, you know, a state that where one goes beyond the realm of birth, old age, sickness and death and beyond even the making of karma. The mind is no longer creating karma or the karmic causes for further birth, old age, sickness and death. This is Nibbāna and he had this sense that there must be something outside of birth and death, outside of the round of making karma and experiencing the fruits of karma. It's just an intuition, it's just his insight from his practice, there must be something like that. Just as there is uh, night following day, just as there's black and white, up and down and so on. And we have these opposites in life. He could say, well, if there's birth and death, there must be something that is beyond birth and death, that is not birth and death. So another way we describe Nibbāna is the deathless. You know, that, that which exists beyond birth and death. The pure mind, the un attached, undefiled mind that is no longer making karma. This was what he was moving towards through his development of karma and insight on that evening. To reach that state he had to practice developing the path, what we call the Eightfold Noble Path, the path that we all practice as Buddhists. And it started to become very obvious to him you know, how that path develops for a practitioner is based begins with right view, samaditi. Just this understanding of karma, what is good karma, bad karma. Or the, the Buddha's word was wholesome karma, unwholesome karma, kusala karma, akusala karma. This is the beginning of the path, becoming aware or recognizing these two qualities in our lives and in our particularly in our minds becoming aware of our own thoughts and emotions and starting to be able to separate out between what is wholesome karma and unwholesome karma. This is the forerunner and the heart of right view. That skill in recognizing karma. The only way we can do that is to start to observe, look at our own minds, look at our lives and start looking to see what causes what or what arises dependent on what, what things depend on, what things are caused by. So if we experience some suffering, 
starting to look back and review our lives and say, oh, is this suffering, has it come from a cause? What does it depend on? And we can say, oh, it's the creation of, it's the result of negative karma, the consequence of negative karmic causes. Happiness, spiritual happiness, the kind of happiness that leads to true contentment, peace of mind, what does that what is that caused by? Positive karma. And the word the Buddha uses, akusala karma and kusala karma. Or positive, negative karma, or good and bad karma. It's learning to understand this more completely for oneself, recognizing these uh, qualities and these forces at work that help us to begin our spiritual path following in the footsteps of the Buddha. Until we start to understand karma and see it at work for ourselves, well, we'll always be kind of deluded and lost, won't we? We'll always be like someone walking in the forest at night, like here, without a torch, and you sort of bump into trees and bump into things. You don't quite know why you suffer. Where does it come from? But when you start investigating karma, we can start to see, oh, I'm the cause of this. My actions, what I've done, I said and I thought. And particularly on the mental level, our intentions, our thoughts are the origin of all karma. Now the Buddha always said, the mind is the forerunner of everything we do in life, good and bad. In that famous teaching from the Dhammapada, Mano The mind is the forerunner, the mind is the chief. Everything is completed from the mind. All our karma is developed first through our intentions, wholesome, unwholesome, skillful, unskillful. So that brings on to the rest of the practice, in the practice of sila and samadhi and panya, developing an understanding of our mind, recognizing our wholesome and unwholesome intentions more clearly, and then doing something about it, not just kind of following along and say, oh, I have a wholesome intention, come up, follow it, unwholesome one, I'll follow it, but actually starting to take responsibility for our own mind, what we think, what we do. All the Buddhist path is about this, becoming responsible for what we think and then from that what we say, what we do. So in the first instance it's the practice of sila, virtue, you know, training ourselves to develop wholesome karma through our behavior, external behavior of actions and speech, developing virtuous behavior. This is what leads us to undertake precepts, training guidelines. In lay life we might take on the five precepts when we see the value of these as a way of training. You know, refraining from the intention to kill, refraining from the intention to steal, refraining from the intention to create, commit acts of sexual misconduct, refraining from the intention to lie or use unskillful speech, wrong speech, refraining from the intention to drink or take uh, drink or drugs which cloud the mind. So even the practice of sila, training our external behavior in right action, right speech, right livelihood, 
you know, the, the, those aspects of our path. You know, they, they stem from the mind, training our intentions, getting the intention right, the attitude right, the understanding right. That what I do, what I say, affects my happiness and other people's happiness. You know, the Buddha contemplating karma became absolutely clear on this, no doubt, that we are the owners of our karma. We create the causes of our suffering and happiness. We do it to ourselves, for good or for bad. No doubt, absolute clarity on this. And this is why the Buddhist path begins with sila in this way. As it's like the foundation, the rock, the foundation stone of our practice. And sila actually means rock, means something which is steady, a firm foundation. It's just like building a house or like building this hall. You have to, if you want to have a hall or a house that lasts a long time, you have to make good, strong foundations. If you want to be happy and experience the peace of a happy, peaceful mind, then you have to have, build it on the foundations of sila meaning practicing mindfulness and restraint in our speech, our actions, to refrain from those unwholesome intentions which create suffering for ourselves through our speech, our actions. And this is the heart of sila. That takes great effort, doesn't it? We have to practice, we have to determine to do that and learn, often painfully, we learn from our mistakes. What we said and done, we see, what we said and did cause suffering and then we learn to refrain from similar, doing that again. But the result is that one has this sense of inner peace, inner security developing as one practices keeping the precepts. Even if the world around us is like, you know, in a real mess, completely unreliable, what other people are doing, what's going on in the world, there's wars, there's all kinds of confusion, conflict between people, whether it's in our workplace, society, whether it's in between countries, whatever level you look at. If we can take responsibility for our own actions and speech on this level of sila and be mindful of that and refrain from unwholesome acts of body and speech, then we give ourselves a great source of security, a great foundation of, for peace and happiness in our life. So again, just like this hall, say outside, if there was a raging storm, you know, thunder and lightning, wind, rain, very unpleasant outside, if you have a hall like this, you can come in out of that raging storm, then you, know, you can at least get through that storm because you've got a refuge, you've got a safe place. So sila or virtuous behavior is like that. If, even if the world around us is not virtuous and people, other people don't keep precepts, if we keep precepts and learn to train ourselves to keep living in a virtuous way, then we're giving ourselves our own protection, our own refuge, even within the difficulties and challenges of living in society. Say so if we expect society to kind of change and become very smooth and peaceful and everyone to keep the precepts, well, we'll probably have to wait a long, long time. Not really a practical reality or practical possibility. 
even the Buddha said, you know, the number of people who are actually going to come to the Dhamma and practice Dhamma, very small percentage of humans. Unfortunately, most of us, most people are just caught up in the needs of daily life, making ends meet, earning a living, and often they don't know much about any spiritual path or practice much spiritual path. And the Buddha said the numbers are actually practicing, you know, trying to keep precepts. He said you can compare it, the difference between the cow's horns and the number of hairs on its back. A cow has two horns, but thousands of hairs. It's that kind of proportion. The number of people keeping precepts, practicing Dhamma, compared with those who are not. So we can't wait for everyone else to be practicing and hope that you know, somehow they'll start practicing and then I'll practice going along with them. <laughs> we'll be waiting till our, the last day of our life and still won't have achieved that. It's our job to start practicing for ourselves. We have to be the cow's horns, listen to the teachings and take them on for ourselves. But this is what brings us security even in a, you know, the difficulties of living in the world. It's a protection. And you see this, if people practice the precepts, they develop this sense of peace, happiness in themselves. Sometimes it's reflected in their outward behavior. They're, they're, they have a certain radiance, a certain sense of peace around them. They have a certain sense of harmlessness. You know somebody who keeps the precepts, they're not going to harm you, they're not going to exploit you or fight you or you know, take your possessions away they're not going to take your husband or wife away they'll somebody who keeps the precepts you can trust so they're of great benefit to the world uh, the world needs people who keep precepts that's what helps to revitalize the world because we do get caught up in so much unwholesome karma so somebody who keeps the precepts, the Buddha said, you know, they're, they're somebody is very, very valuable. And the fragrance, one of the similes he used, the fragrance of one who keeps the precepts is far more fragrance than the most fragrant flower or petal of tree that you can uh, think of. Thinking compared to the fragrance of the sala tree that you find in India and Sri Lanka and the Asian countries. Very fragrant tree once a year, they, all the flowers come out and if you're in a, a forest of sala trees, amazingly perfumed scent in the air. But he said the scent of a, the perfume of a sala tree, you know, the wind comes, it blows away, you lose it. But the fragrance of somebody who keeps the precepts and leads a virtuous life cannot be blown away by the wind. It goes in all directions. Their good reputation goes in all directions. No, no one can take that away. And it's also the foundation for developing meditation, for developing that insight into really liberating our mind from the causes of suffering that is so valuable in keeping the precepts as already as you keep the precepts you're developing the mindfulness and the effort that is required to use in meditation you're already training your mind in that way 
You're learning to let go of unwholesome, unskillful intentions. It requires awareness, it requires determination and effort. Just as when you come to meditate, like here tonight, we're practicing meditation. It takes effort to sit down, quietly turn your attention to the breath, to quieten your mind, still your mind. It takes effort, it takes uh, mindfulness, awareness. So, so the practice of sila supports this. As we practice right effort and right mindfulness, it leads on to the development of right samadhi, this, these states of peace and stillness that are so valuable for human beings, like a breath of fresh air. If you ever meditate and actually experience some peace, you, you don't forget that sense of peace. Even if it's only once in a lifetime, you won't forget that. It will stick with you in your memory. One of the things we can do as we practice, we can recollect you know, the peaceful states we've had through our practice, from the, the dana we've done, you know, the practice of generosity and kindness, the happiness of living uh, according to the precepts, and then the happiness that's come through meditation. We can recollect that. And it's a source of constant inspiration to keep practicing. You know, if you ever find your faith in the Buddhist practice wavering, you're getting lost or becoming uncertain or doubting, well try and think back to what originally motivated you to take up meditation or to practice any aspect of the teachings. And you'll find often it involves just remembering that peace, say, of the first peaceful meditation you had or the happiness of dana practiced well, you know, helping somebody, doing some act of kindness or generosity. That kind of memory sticks with you and can be a constant source of nourishment for the mind in the practice. And we need to do that to keep refreshing our, our, our memory of these moments to give us the strength to keep practicing. What we find as we keep practicing, as we, uh, if we practice regularly in meditation, then sooner or later we do start to find there are times when the mind becomes more still, more quiet. And the way the Buddha said it happens is through the uh, presence of vitaka vichara, the words he used, like applied application of mind, applied thought or sustained thought, meaning applying your mind to your meditation object. So if it's the breath, it means you keep applying your mind to the breath, paying attention to it and sustaining your attention on the breath as you meditate will bring forth what we call pity, the five kinds of pity. Sometimes as we Pity is rapture of joy as the mind quietens down, settles down in meditation. These five kinds of rapture, you might already have experienced it. Sometimes we find that we have tears forming in as we're meditating. Tears of, say, release or happiness as the mind quietens down. Or our, we find the hairs on our arms are sort of tingling, standing on end. We have goosebumps. Or some people find they actually start to waver a little bit, actually move, seems like the modern body is moving a little bit with the rapture. 
or the body becomes very light, light seems to, the body seems to be weightless as the mind calms down, body and mind become very light, rapturous. The final kind of pity is when the body seems to be completely light to the point where it just disappears as though we're floating in mid-air. Very rapturous state based on our efforts in just calming the mind, focusing on our meditation object. If one experiences that, then obviously at that point one won't have any anger or boredom or irritation, restlessness. The mind will be very content and one won't forget that. Even if it only lasts for a few moments or a short period of time, you'll remember that and you'll know, oh, this was good, this was something very special, very valuable. As we meditate, that leads on to sukha. Sukha is the happiness of a peaceful mind, where the mind becomes very, very content, inwardly content, not wanting anything else. And normally, we're, when we're meditating, you'll see the mind can be very restless, wanting many things, maybe just wanting to stop and get up and stop and do something, anything maybe wanting something in particular, wanting food or wanting sleep or wanting to go and talk to someone or do something, be active. You know, we're always wanting things. But the arising of sukha, this state of contentment, happiness in the meditation, is a it's very internal sense of peace, satisfaction, where the mind at that time doesn't want anything else, it's quite happy. This kind of happiness you cannot buy, you cannot get by going out to the shops and there's no, you know, no company that supplies this in the world, unfortunately. It can only arise through our own efforts in meditation. But again, it's something that's memorable and it draws us on to want to keep meditating if we experience some contentment. The final part of samadhi is... is one-pointedness, the stillness of mind that comes as the mind really settles down and becomes so still that all the thoughts and distractions, sensations don't bother it at all. Sounds and other things don't bother it at all. The mind is perfectly peaceful and happy within itself and very still. Just like a pool of water, a pool of water that's become very still and all the Silt and mud is settled to the bottom of that pool of water, crystal clear. The, you know, the development of samadhi is like that. The mind becomes very, very clear and happy in itself. And the Buddha said it's that clarity that is the foundation for insight, for wisdom, that will help us to root out the causes, the deep root causes of these unwholesome karmic intentions based in different kinds of greed, anger and delusion. So we actually need to still our minds first in order to see, see these various negative emotions, negative unwholesome states arising, to catch them and to recognize them for what they are. And there's one, in contemplating this, there's one important lesson we have to learn which I think all of us have to go through is that as you're meditating and learning to still your mind and then contemplate what's arising, we're learning to weed out what we call dunha 
uh, craving, desire, the, the very root cause of our suffering. And of course craving can arise at any time in our practice and even can come up during the practice as we meditate. We can have craving for peace, craving for happiness, craving for the results of good meditation. This can arise and the Buddha could see this even on the night of his enlightenment. He could see even that was one form of suffering. And he was very clear in his mind, he could see that there's what we call a wholesome desire that springs from faith and that desire to find true peace and the end of suffering. And then this unwholesome desire, craving. Wholesome desire always leads to um, the arising of the factors of the past, so the arising of sila, samadhi and panya. It leads to us to act, to develop the path. That's its nature. It's a quality of mind. If one's looking at it in a, in a very neutral way, it's just that wholesome desire for the end of suffering. It leads to the development of the path. Dunha, or craving, the root cause of suffering, is different. It always leads to seeking and searching and looking for the results of the, the search, gaining things, wanting things. And there's a subtle difference between wholesome desire, the Buddha's word is chanda or kusala chanda and craving or unwholesome desire as you meditate you'll notice this, eh? you meditate and you'll notice sometimes you want to be peaceful and the very wanting becomes the obstacle to being peaceful we desire peace with craving, we desire the peaceful state, we want to be peaceful like we've had before maybe and we want it again or we've heard about it we've listened to the teachings we want to experience it that craving can be as big an obstacle as anything so as soon as that which is not peaceful arises in our mind we get annoyed upset agitated angry we don't want it we don't want a not peaceful mind we want a peaceful mind this is craving at work in the mind and even as we practice meditation just like the Buddha I have to sort this out get this clear what is craving and what is not what is the Dhamma what is the path and what is not when craving arises it will cause us all kinds of problems so as we're meditating we'll have thoughts arise and we'll say oh this thought is a distraction thinking about our work our families whatever and then we might fall into disappointment or aversion to the very thoughts that are coming up. And the desire, what's feeding this is the desire to be peaceful and the dissatisfaction with what we're experiencing. But this is feeding craving rather than the development of the path, mindfulness and wisdom. A very important point in this because we'll tend to experience this regularly often in our practice daily maybe even tonight you've already felt it it's like you sit down you want to meditate you want to be peaceful still concentrated it's not happening there's lots of thoughts coming or we feel tired and sleepy and then we react to that and we become more entangled in our reaction and what we think about what's happening so you might have a thought and then you think about that thought and this is the whole mass the entanglement of craving at least like a big knot like a you know a ball of thread that just gets all knotted up 
You have one thought and then you judge that thought, think about it with another thought. So you might have a thought and say, oh, I'm thinking too much. I should let this thought go and follow the breath. It doesn't happen to, oh, I'm not following the best breath. I'm thinking too much. I'm no good. I'm a bad meditator or it's hopeless. I'm no good. And then you get upset with yourself for not being peaceful. And then you get upset with yourself for not being peaceful and for being upset at not being peaceful. And on it goes. And we get upset because we're upset. <laughs> Maybe in the end we just give up because we frustrate ourselves to the point where we just can't sustain it. This is how craving sneaks into what we're doing. And you can see in any act, any activity or part of our lives, craving will come in and it will cause, up, cause us all kinds of trouble, get us into a real tangled knot. Whether it's work we're doing, other things we're doing, all these reactions based on our likes and dislikes and our deep-seated attachments. And craving and attachment are a pair that go together. It's only learning to calm the mind down and starting to observe these forces at work in our own mind that we can start to sort out what is craving and what is wisdom, what is mindfulness. But as we do practice, we, we can gain this, this kind of understanding. And it doesn't mean to say we always have to be perfectly peaceful as we meditate. Uh, Ajahn Chah, our teacher, always used to say, you know, everybody has this problem with the monkey mind, in the mind that just runs around thinking all the time. We try to meditate, make it very still and peaceful, and it's not doing what we want. It's naughty, it's like a monkey. It goes here, goes there up and down, thinking all over the place. But he said, you know, you don't have to do very much with that monkey other than just know it's a monkey. You just know, oh, my mind is like this. It's thinking a lot. It's distracted. It's restless. It's worried, whatever the problem is. You just know, oh, that's what it is. That's what's happening. A monkey is just a monkey. Once you know a monkey is a monkey, you don't get bothered by it anymore. You don't suffer or get upset by it because you know what it is. So we have to learn to do that, to turn our mind around as we meditate and as we find getting distracted and entangled in our own thoughts and just stop and say, oh, this is the monkey at work. You'll find once you can do that, you can settle back, even though maybe many thoughts are coming up bothering you. You can also just step one back one step and just know, oh, this is the monkey mind at work. doesn't matter. I'll just let it go on by itself and I'll sit here and watch it. But I know it's a monkey and I'm not going to let it bother me. You can do that to your own mind. The more you do that, then obviously you're undermining the causes for all that thinking and restless kind of thinking and agitated thinking that bothers us so much. And little by little it will start to fade out because you just know it for what it is and you don't create anything more out of it or make any big problem out of it. This is both developing mindfulness and wisdom. You're understanding the nature of your own mind. The monkey mind, you know what it's like. The peaceful mind, you know what it's like. When the mind does become peaceful and still, you know that. When the mind is not peaceful, you know that. This is wisdom, isn't it? Understanding the nature of these things and understanding that they're not permanent, they're not the real you, they're not the real self, they're not a person, a being. These are just what we say, conditions 
of mind that depend on various causes and conditions to arise. The more we develop this kind of understanding, we're seeing that we don't have to attach to everything that arises in our experience. We just know things as they are. We know the good is the good, the bad is the bad. We know the peaceful mind, the not peaceful mind. We know pleasant feelings as pleasant, unpleasant feelings as unpleasant. We know this body as a body. A body is like this. Sometimes it's our body that's the cause of our suffering, isn't it? We have a body, maybe it gets ill or tired, or we have some pain as we sit meditation. We are just knowing painful feeling as painful feeling, the body as the body. This is how the Buddha practiced on the night of his enlightenment. Later on he taught it as what we call satipatthana, the four foundations of mindfulness. Just using the power of mindfulness and this, the, the concentrated mind that we're developing to turn back and look at experience as it is without judging it and to see it in light of the truth of anicca dukkha anatta, meaning it's impermanent, unsatisfactory, not self. Vipassana. This is what the Buddha was doing that actually freed his mind from all forms of craving and attachment on the night of his enlightenment. Learning to just focus his mind on his own body as he was sitting under the Bodhi tree. You know, this body is a body. Where is it coming from? What's it made up of? It's made up of four elements, earth, air, fire and water. Is there a self in this body? Can I really say this body is me, mine, myself? can't do that under the power of mindfulness and wisdom investigating the truth the Buddha could turn and look and see the body is just the body it's just that much it's a physical entity that comes into being from birth we're born we carry this body around we have it we experience it but eventually it gets old and dies and goes back to the elements it's part of nature the feelings we have both the feelings, physical feelings based on this body, the pleasure, the pain, and the mental experiences of pleasure and pain, the emotional states with their feelings, are just that. Feeling is just feeling. Under the power of mindfulness, the Buddha could see this, the truth, separating out the mind, the body, feelings, putting each in its place, but not attaching or grasping any of these as a self. This is how we practice vipassana in this way, learning to see the dependently originated nature of this body, this mind, the thoughts we have, the feelings we have, using mindfulness to just know these things as they are, know the peaceful mind as peaceful mind, distracted mind as distracted, no kilesa or defilement as defilement, no the pure mind as the pure mind, no the body as the body, feeling as feelings, all these things, seeing them and knowing them as just as they are, without adding anything else on. This is what the culmination, all these path factors that we develop, the sila, the samadhi, the panya, all coming together, that this is what it allows us to do or recognize, just to see the lack of self in all these things. And what's left is just pure knowing, isn't it? Pure wisdom and understanding of the truth of these things.
this is what allows the mind to be liberated from its normal entanglement with everything normal states of suffering anger and worry and selfishness and fear and greed all the different things we experience based on our deluded knowing of reality we're starting to un unentangle that through the practice and development of mindfully becoming aware of these things through the practice of meditation so tonight we're going to practice like this for uh, the rest of the night for those who are willing and able to stay and have the health and the strength and the motivation to do that so we can all um, carry on practicing tonight following in the footsteps of the Buddha as a we say pati pati puja is like making an offering to the Buddha through our practice out of gratitude, out of appreciation for all that the Buddha did for us in his own enlightenment, his quest for truth. We can pay something back to him as it were through or express our gratitude and appreciation through our own efforts in the practice, Patipati Puja. We all know about Amisa Puja, it's like making uh, offerings, you know, material offerings to the Buddha. We offer candles and incense. We make offerings to the Sangha and so on. But Patipati Puja, making offerings through our practice or making our practice into an offering. Not only to the Buddha but to each one of the people here we can make our practice an offering to support each other. Uh, if somebody is diligent in their practice and really sticks at it and maybe just gives up all concerns about tiredness and distraction and all that and just sticks with their practice through the night they not only are helping themselves but they're helping other people by giving them some inspiration and energy in their practice and we can all do that for each other and make our practices into an offering So for now we can have a break and uh, finish the talk here. Um, for those of you who like downstairs can have some refreshments and those of you who wish to stay on tonight, well, we'll be here all night, can practice sitting meditation, walking meditation around the hall if you wish. And there will be refreshments downstairs for those who completely get exhausted and can't carry on practicing they can take a rest the ladies down in the kitchen there by the fire the men over in the house where the monks normally eat their meal there's space there to have a rest uh, and for the moment we'll uh, I'll leave it there and can carry on practicing mm -hmm.